number one wizard, Devin Person, and you're listening to This Podcast is a Ritual. Now, normally there's two kinds of episodes that we do on This Podcast is a Ritual. One is when I interview a guest and we talk about a topic. It's got a how-to title. And then at the end, we come up with a magic spell that you can do to help you orient towards a slightly better reality. The other is when it's just me talking because I didn't book a guest or there's something that I kind of want to dive into on my own. And so I'll write out a script and then I'll read it. And that will be a solo cast episode where it's just me talking. But today I'm doing something totally different because I don't have a script for this episode or a guest. It's just going to be me talking into a microphone, trying to find the ideas in the moment on the fly fumbling around like a real human being making a whole bunch of mistakes. And the reason I'm doing that is because this episode is unlike any I've done before. This episode is a prophecy. Now, when I say prophecy, I don't mean this is guaranteed to come to pass, but rather I am trying to tap into my own intuitive understanding of where we are going so I can give us a vision of that, as well as a warning about things that we should think about and be concerned about as we move into the future at what feels, for most of us, like an ever-quickening rate. So, our magic word today is going to be prophecy. On the count of three, say it with me. One, two, three, prophecy. Okay. Now, I've been working on this episode for a while and I kept trying to write scripts and I had an idea that I was going to do like a radio lab thing and have lots of cool music and transitions and it was going to be very edited and structured and that didn't happen uh, because the topic that I'm going to be speaking about, which surprise, surprise, is artificial intelligence, uh, has been moving so quickly that the thing I was working on kind of felt obvious and irrelevant before I got any real progress on it. So today I'm just saying, you know what? I'm a human. I'm a wizard. I've got a microphone. Let's let her rip. Um, This is also me trying something different because I have a long track record of correctly predicting the future and not doing anything about it. I remember back in high school, I was driving around with my friend Brad and we had just gotten cell phones. This was when we were like 17 or something in 2003. And I was saying, you know, man, I think that in the future, our phone, our iPod, all of these things are going to be one thing. We're going to have little Dick Tracy watches where we can see each other's face and have conversations. I think this is where it's going. He's like, no, dude, it's batteries. The batteries won't be able to support that. But 
few years later, the iPhone came out and uh, changed the entire world. So I'm not saying I invented the iPhone. It's easy to have an idea. At that point, it was pretty easy to kind of predict where things were going. But I, you know, had an awareness about trends and wasn't really doing much with it. Uh, I was aware of Bitcoin early on and knew I was like, hey, (laughs) digital currency, that'll probably be something. And then didn't do anything about it. And then when it became an investment scam and NFTs emerged, I was like, that is going to crash, which it did. Also didn't do anything about it. And even when Trump was a joke candidate and first coming out in the primaries in 2015, I was like, oh, this is, yeah, he's clowning on everybody. And that's what Republican audiences want. They're going to eat it up. And the conventional wisdom at the time was like, no, no, he's not a serious candidate. Jeb Bush is going to get the nomination. And uh, well, guess who was right? So I'm not trying to get any points here. You don't get any points for just sitting on the sidelines going, hmm, I saw that coming. But I read a lot of science fiction and I'm a freaking wizard. So I have a lot of weird ideas about artificial intelligence and the way things are trending. And so I want to just dive into them today and see if I can lay them out in an interesting way. So let's get into it. Now, the first big issue I think we need to confront when it comes to artificial intelligence is the anthropomorphism trap. We see this in science fiction with the idea of humanoid robots. You think of a robot like C-3PO and it looks like a dude. I mean, it is a dude just wearing a suit and they have legs and they have a head and a face. And we say, oh, that's what a robot should be. But we've had robots for decades We have factories at this point that are basically entirely automated and they're just rows and rows of conveyor belts and arms that are doing repetitive tasks. They don't need to have legs. They don't need to have a face. That's irrelevant. We have robot vacuum cleaners that look like hockey pucks. My house has robots throughout that are just speakers. They're just speakers that I can go, hey, Google, what's the weather? And then it tells me the weather and it doesn't have to have a face, doesn't have to have legs. Those are irrelevant. But we've been conditioned to think that when the robots come, they're going to be a bunch of individuals just like us walking around on legs. And one of the most fun examples I can think about is this little thought exercise where design a robot waiter. Close your eyes and think about what would a robot waiter look like? Now, maybe because I've just talked about this, you're trying hard not to think of a human, but a lot of people historically would have imagined, you know, some kind of thing rolling around or walking on legs, coming up to tables, asking you what you want, ordering food, yada, yada. That's not the case. We've had robot waiters forever. They're just freaking vending machines. A vending machine is a robot waiter. You put in money, you type A3, the corkscrew spins, and then you get your Funyuns, and that is a robot waiter. So when it comes to intelligence, especially now that ChatGPT is coming out, I've seen all of these New York Times opinion articles where they're like, well, I asked ChatGPT to do this and it didn't do it the way a human would have done it. So therefore, I'm smarter. Ha ha ha. Silly dumb robot. And that's making the exact same mistake. So if we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, the first thing that we need to do is break out of this idea that it has to be human intelligence that it has to look like us or talk like us or solve problems the way we do or have the same self-awareness and personality we do. And that's the true test. I mean, that's literally been the true test. 
The Turing test is the idea that you can have a chat interface and when a robot or intelligence is indistinguishable from a human, so basically if you could get catfished by a chatbot, then it's passed the Turing test. Well, <laughs> that makes a couple of weird assumptions. One, it assumes that that is the real marker of intelligence, which I'll break down in a second. And two, it also assumes that humans in chat interfaces are compelling and conversational. And I think if anyone's ever had a Tinder conversation go absolutely nowhere, you know that a chatbot could do a much better job than most human beings. But so let's zoom out for a moment and just talk about intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills. And one of the most intelligent things that we are aware of is nature. Nature is a process that acquires and applies knowledge and skills over time through evolution. So nature constantly comes up with ingenious solutions to complex problems. If you think about all of the beetles and fungi and birds with specifically designed beaks, these are all solutions for how do I move around on a forest floor and eat stuff? How do I decompose material and absorb its nutrients? How do I get pollen out of a plant that's shaped in a funny way? I mean, camouflage is solving the problem of how do I stop things from eating me? Poison is another way to deter things. And this was not designed by someone just sitting around and looking at a whiteboard and saying, what's the best way to design a bird beak? but by trying lots of things over time, having mutations, which are just variation in your attempts and seeing what works. And then over thousands of years, this forms incredibly complicated solutions, including human beings and their brains, which we still really have no idea what's going on. So here's the funny paradox that we think human intelligence is the gold standard. That's the best way to be intelligent. And yet human intelligence was created by this quote unquote dumb process of accidental innovation, which we have not been able to unravel yet. So let's talk about human intelligence. Now, one of the things that I read that just blew my mind and changed the way I thought about it is a book called The Society of Mind by Marvin Minsky, which was written in the 1960s, and he himself was an artificial intelligence researcher. And what Minsky wanted to do was answer the question of how does consciousness and self-awareness emerge from things that themselves are not conscious or self-aware. So basically, let's imagine that we build a robot out of Legos. If the individual Legos are not robots and can't move around, how do all of these pieces result in something that can and what Minsky came up with is this idea of agents and societies. So you can think of agents as those little tiny building blocks like Legos that are performing incredibly simple functions, just on-off switches, binary, basic, boop, little tiny things. And then when you get a group of them, you end up like with a Lego building set with a pirate ship or a cave or a Harry Potter castle or whatever it's going to be. And that's a society. So the example that Minsky uses that I really like is if you imagine a little toddler sitting and playing with blocks. So you're watching this kid and he's grabbing blocks. He's making a little tower. He builds the tower up and he gets bored and he smashes the tower and then he starts over. And so we're like, okay, it's just playing with blocks. Big whoop. It's a baby. Babies can do it. 
But this is so complicated because first you have to think about vision. How is this little baby able to perceive the blocks? They have all of these photons that are receiving light. Those photons are translating that into signals. The signals are going to the brain. And then there's agents that are taking those little bits of information and building out this whole vision of the carpet, the blocks, the chair, the plants, the dog, all of the things in the field of vision. And then there has to be another group of agents identifying what of all of that is the block. Okay, that's the block. We can kind of see it in our mind with like RoboCop vision. We've outlined it. There is the block. Now we have to calculate how far away is the block. Then we activate an entirely different society that's moving this hand around. If you've ever watched a newborn, their hands are just flopping around. It takes a while to figure out, hey, I can kind of control that. And even right now, if you think about moving your hand, you don't really know exactly how it's happening. It just kind of does. So there's a society that's moving the hand out, identifying where that block is, how far the hand should extend. And then like that robot claw game, bringing the hand down, telling it to squeeze, not too tight, not too loose so that they can lift the block up, move it over and then release the block. So that simple action that's astoundingly complex is just moving the blocks. And that creates a society called move the blocks. Eventually, the move the block society is getting a tower that's pretty tall. And then there's another one that's deciding, hmm, would it be more fun to try and add another block or should I just smash them all and knock them down? So within all of us, there's all kinds of societies composed of possibly trillions of these little agents that are helping us perceive the world around us, identify sensory information, form opinions, have emotions, all of these experiences. And from these societies, built up of societies, built up of societies, stacked and stacked and stacked, we have self-awareness and consciousness emerging. But we can take this same metaphor and apply it to our biological reality. We're made up of cells. The cells are full of smaller pieces, little mitochondria and DNA and things like that. The cells create organ tissue, muscle fiber, bones, nerves, all of that. Those create organ systems, which create our body. And so we are just little tiny things stacked all the way up. And then we ourselves are agents in the larger society of dun, 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 society itself. Human society is composed of us as individual agents performing these functions. I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I eat food, I go to sleep. I post my opinion on Twitter, I go vote, I move to a different state. All of these actions that I'm taking in my own little subjective journey add up to population shifts from New York to Kentucky and people winning elections and public opinion about some event bubbling up and emerging on Twitter. So all of these individual actions that I think I'm taking for my own reason are part of a society and part of larger shifts. Now, we kind of don't like to think about ourselves in that way. It's a little uncomfortable. So when we look at history, often we devolve, we trend towards what's called the great man theory. So we think that America was founded because the founding fathers, these specific individuals wrote the constitution and it was them that made the decision or 
you know, Edison invented the light bulb and it was him alone that had this discovery because he was so smart and he was so intelligent. But I'm sorry to say that theory is completely false. Every invention is the result of so many other inventions that came before. And Edison is just the one who happened to make those connections, trying some mutation of what other people tried before or linking two different ideas together. So inventions aren't due to isolated geniuses. These geniuses are just the people in the place where the new technologies were going to emerge because all of these things were kind of bouncing off of each other in that way we just talked about with nature, that mutation, that random chance, that evolutionary advantage where you find a niche and you find, oh, here's a clever trick that we can use. And one of the fun ways that we see this is before Twitter's really degraded lately, but a good joke on Twitter. Often, if you search the text of that joke, there's a million people who have made that because that combination of words and ideas is, is just out there. It's just kind of waiting to be picked up and solved. The other day I woke up from, you know, half sleep and I was like, oh, there's that famous painting where it's like, this is not a pipe. Wouldn't it be funny if it was like, this is not a drill and it was like a drill. And then I Googled it. And of course, there's already like 10 million shirts that say it in French and have different images because that idea is a connection that was sort of just waiting to happen. So we get concerned about, oh, did you steal that joke? When really, no, a lot of the times it just happens in parallel. So let's look at something like Twitter, just as an example of one of these societies. Twitter has agents, which we call users, and they're all performing various tasks. They're logging in, they're scrolling on their feed, they're commenting, they're resharing things, they're posting, maybe they're posting jokes, maybe they're posting breaking news, maybe they're posting clips of B-movie. Who cares? It doesn't matter. We do this all the time, and we make up these societies like Instagram and TikTok. And if you look at what agents do, what users do, I think there's kind of four main roles that we have. One is create. So we are making something new, more or less, not really new, but we're posting content. It could be your aunt just saying happy birthday on Facebook. It could be somebody creating a meme that's their original thing and sharing it on Instagram. It could be somebody inventing a new dance on TikTok, but we're posting something that we have created. Some of us do that, but more and more now we curate. So when I open Instagram, I scroll through and I see wizard memes and I will save them and then I'll pick the ones that I like. So I'm curating and then I'll reshare them as a post saying, here's a bunch of wizard memes. I also will just scroll through Instagram and go, oh, here's a meme about techno and rave culture. I'm going to send it to this friend. Oh, here's like a kind of kinky meme. I'm going to send it to this friend. Oh, here's this weird thing of a dog playing basketball. I'm going to send it to this friend. We kind of are just constantly vectors of culture moving through these platforms. And I, as an individual agent, am just like the mailman sorting it, delivering my letters. Here you go. Here's this thing, blah, blah, blah. And then also we are just consuming. Even if I'm just scrolling endlessly and clicking like, that is an activity that is generating information. This post got X amount of likes. This Instagram post got X amount of comments. 
this sort of engagement, just absorbing stuff into our eyeballs is how these social networks operate. So, okay. We are agents, aka users, we're on social platforms, aka societies, and we're creating, curating, and consuming content. Every once in a while, there's a mutation, so suddenly I make a new meme format, and now pondering the orb memes are everywhere, and people are riffing on those in different ways, and that's kind of a template, but for the most part, we're creating, we're curating, and consuming. Now, have you ever heard of the ship of Theseus? Real quick, this is a philosophical question from ancient Greece where this dude Theseus has got a ship and he's out sailing around the Mediterranean and then the mast of the ship breaks. So he pulls into port and he gets the mast replaced. And then he's sailing around and then the bow breaks. And so he pulls in, gets the bow replaced. And he keeps going until every single part of the ship has been replaced. And the question is, is that still the ship of Theseus? Now, what if we think about something like Twitter, a social network, and we imagine replacing these parts one at a time with AI? So, okay, first and foremost, let's start with creating. I can now set up ChatGPT and say, give me a list of funny meme ideas. I'll plug those into MidJourney. I'll move them around, and then I'll create a bot that does this automatically and posts it on Twitter. So now I have a bot that comes up with meme ideas, makes the memes on MidJourney, posts them to Twitter, and it's just doing that endlessly. Maybe the memes are terrible. Maybe sometimes they're funny because there's kind of a fluke. It doesn't really matter. It is creating content. And honestly, are the AI memes going to be that different than the stupid, you know, Blue Lives Matter minion memes that get shared on Facebook? Like, who freaking cares? Next is curate. AI already does that. That is actually the fundamental way that AI is used on these platforms. TikTok is algorithmic curation. It is taking in all of these signals about clicks and view time and other interests and all of these things that are behind the scenes and then curating your for you page just by that. You could also make a bot that is going and saying, okay, I'm looking at meme content. I follow meme accounts. I'm selecting the best ones and then I'm resharing those in this automated way. The final one is consume. And right now, this is where our anthropomorphic bias kicks in. It's very hard for us to imagine some sort of bot that's like scrolling Instagram or TikTok and just enjoying content, but we don't have to really worry about that right now because we can kind of think about the ship of Theseus problem. And let's imagine that, as Elon Musk was so concerned about, that Twitter is currently 5% bots and the bots are annoying. They're trying to sell you t-shirts or spam you about, you know, projection lamps and OnlyFans and yada yada. But over time, what if these bots start getting better? So they're posting links to news articles, they're breaking news, these random memes that they're generating are actually getting pretty funny, the other bots are curating them, and over time you could imagine that this whole system is going from 5% bots to 95% bots to 100% bots. There's no more humans in the loop, it's just AI bots on Twitter following the patterns that were set originally by human users or agents, but are now just autonomous. And this giant Twitter society 
would have weird trends. It might have some fluke where it gets obsessed with the green M&M. It might suddenly trend towards right-wing content. It might, you know, have an opinion about an election. All of these things could just emerge out of all of these little individual actions, even though there's no humans involved anymore. And we can kind of think about that with a lot of things. I mean, right now, I, as an individual human agent, if I go to an office job, I'm a whole person. I have opinions. I have a family. I care about the environment. I have this whole rich world. And only a small part of that is going into work, reading one set of Google Docs and translating them into another set of Google Docs. But for my company to exist and function, it doesn't care that much about the whole rich complexity of who I am. It just cares about that task of translating one set of Google Docs into another. And so we can start to imagine shaving the back end off of these. So instead of needing a complex human being who's wasting a lot of caloric energy on all of their hobbies and pastimes and things they do outside of work, we just have a simplified bot that's performing that function in loop. And then if we see these in total, you could start to imagine whole societies of societies where these AI agents even though they're stupid and they don't have human intelligence, are scaling up to recreate the same sort of decision-making that the Pepsi Corporation does or the fandom communities that populate Twitter or whatever YouTube comments. I mean, it's not that hard. Do you really need a racist uncle to write racist YouTube comments or can you just make a bot do it? Okay, now let's come back to that idea of consuming. We're imagining our theoretical Twitter where the bots are starting to take over creating and curating the content, and I am a human user that is unaware that this is happening. So I think everybody else on here is real, and they're interacting with me in real ways, but they've all slowly been replaced. They've all passed the Turing test. Even, I mean, <laughs> how many Twitter humans kind of would fail the Turing test because they're just repeatedly posting about their multi-level marketing scheme uh, or their, you know, new age influencer content. So I'm the last human left on Twitter and I'm just hanging out, <laughs> just perceiving all of this content and I'm just consuming it. We're going to take a turn here and we're going to talk about this idea that Robert Anton Wilson, a philosopher, anarchist from the 60s, 70s, 80s, he's the guy that wrote the Illuminatus trilogy. Um, in his book, Prometheus Rising, he came up with this term of reality tunnel. And a reality tunnel is just how we see the world. It's we have these early experiences, we intook, input this information, and now we think that Republicans are the good guys or Democrats are the good guys. Immigrants are the problem. Climate change is the problem. We have this whole construction of our reality. And when two people who are on opposite sides don't see along, it's because they're not agreeing about the same facts. They're seeing different facts. They don't mesh. They don't vibe. They're in two different realities. And this has obviously become more and more of an issue recently because things like QAnon just give you a very insulated reality tunnel where it's disconnected from the more quote unquote mainstream reality tunnel that most of us have at least one foot in. We kind of have a shared reality, but more and more people are splintering off out into these bubbles. So what happens 
when it's not just our own random experience of growing up and having these parental influences that are creating our reality tunnels, but it's these algorithms, these AI processes that are curating what we see and experience. Again, this is already happening and it's being you know, on YouTube and you're looking at gamer content and that's bringing you to Gamergate content, which is bringing you to red-pilled misogyny content, which then takes you down into this alt-right QAnon rabbit hole. These algorithms are taking one piece of information and then they're sorting out what you see and what you don't see and creating this reality tunnel. So what if we are no longer ingesting human-made content, trying to understand what other humans want to say, but instead are being fed AI-generated content tailored to our preferences that we're unable to articulate, understand, or possibly resist. So that loop that's just generating random garbage memes is then at a higher level being curated. So only the memes that make sense and kind of fit are being sorted up, and then those are being sorted based into some signal that we've given off intentionally or unintentionally about what we like. And then as soon as that happens, we're caught in a little whirlpool and we're fed more and more and more of the same thing. Our tastes are suddenly changing. It's like you're browsing Pornhub and you clicked foot video and suddenly the next day when you log in, it's all feet content and then more and more. And now it's going down deeper and deeper. And now it's just, you know, seven foot tall women licking pinky toes because that is the weird little whirlpool that you've gotten sucked into. Strange, right? Time to zoom out and talk about virtual reality. The metaverse. Oh my God. I can't even begin to explain how annoying I think it is that Facebook rebranded as meta and everyone went along with it. And also how annoying it is that Mark Zuckerberg has spent billions of dollars making the jankiest second life ripoff you've ever seen. Like, you know, the Pentagon wastes a lot of money. Like there's so much clear corruption there of just, you know, $50 hammers and nonsense. But how, how do you spend billions of dollars and make a legless Zoom call? I, 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 I don't get it. But let's get back to the topic at hand. If you say the word VR right now, most people are going to think of goggles on head. That is our idea of VR. And that, again, falls into this quasi-anthropomorphic bias that we talked about with AI. This idea that it's this one specific thing that's very human-oriented. If there's not goggles or there's not a head, there's not virtual reality. But that's really just not true. We live in worlds that mix abstract imaginal concepts and abstractions into our physical experience all the time through signs, language, iconography. My friend Elliot Edge once said that a church is a VR helmet because when you go into a church, you are surrounded by a physical building that creates this virtual experience of God and religion and these rules and these myths and it all comes into your being. So if we think about this, we're already living in a metaverse. I mean, relationships that people have with podcasters or with TV shows can be more primary than the ones they have with their neighbors and their physical community. And as this continues to develop, there's just a different scale of immersion. 
if I'm listening to a podcast while I cook, if I'm watching a video podcast on YouTube, or I've got it now on a home theater with surround sound, or finally, I've strapped some freaking goggles to my face. These are just different levels of immersion. And so we can kind of see it from, I'm in the kitchen cooking, listening to a podcast, 95% in the kitchen, I'm 5% in virtual reality. When I put the goggles on, I'm 95% in virtual reality. I'm only 5% concerned with my physical environment at that time. So who lives more fully in virtual reality? A teen furry who's constantly on Tumblr, on Twitter, engaging with these communities of people that they only know through avatars and abstractions, or somebody who's just talking with coworkers and metaverse horizons, you know, business call. One of those is a very small virtual space with a very boring function. The other is a vast universe of connection that extends beyond that bedroom, even though someone's just using a laptop to click around and type text and look at images. As big as our world is, it's finite. There's only so much of planet Earth, and a lot of it is ocean. Uh, But the metaverse is a landscape of information, and that is growing all the time. The amount of information that was not only in existence, but was navigable that you could go and find has grown so exponentially in the last century. It's staggering. You can't make a map of the internet anymore. Uh, It's very hard to know where all of these things are happening. And especially as some of these big platforms, those societies we talked about, like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter are breaking down. Um, a lot of it's going dark. So there's entire Discord communities and things where if you don't know where to look, it's invisible to you. It's a bubble that exists separate. So we're entering a very strange, convoluted world where we can't just say, I live in Kentucky and New York is over there and there's these states in between and here's the makeup of this population. Instead, we're saying, I don't know where all of the furries are, and they might be in places that, you know, there's no census that's going to reach them. And those communities can grow and change in ways that is not identifiable until suddenly they burst out and re-enter one of our other reality tunnels. So the map of the metaverse is very confusing. You can live next door with someone in physical reality and be completely on opposite ends of the metaverse. You have no idea that your neighbor is deep in some weird, you know, twisted, flat earther, anti-Semitic rabbit hole and is about to go do a mass shooting uh, because they're off in some weird fucking message board pocket of the universe, even though they live right next door to you. And so that brings us to this idea about how does information travel? So in the past, events happened and only a few were seen and reported Literally, you know, a reporter would go out and be like, oh, there was a public hanging today. Here's who was hanged. And then it would get published. And then that would be printed and distributed. And you would read it and go, ah, here's what happened in my town yesterday. But as information has spread exponentially, that's gotten a lot more complicated. So to explore this, I'm going to use the example of that old thing of if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? So in the past, a lot of trees fell. 
shit was happening all the time, but only on occasion was someone around to hear it and report it and have that information enter that kind of metaversal information sphere. So we can think of this event, tree falls in local forest, and it gets reported and that information gets distributed in your small town newspaper. Now, if you run into the neighborhood or run into a neighbor at the grocery store, you can ask if they've seen the news and they know that we both read the same local paper and they're like, ah, yes, you know, I've either read it and I know the tree fell or I didn't, but there's this common agreement around this stream of information. Now, as the amount of newspapers increased and changed what they covered and how they agreed on things, that's broken down. So right now, there's a lot of papers and you might have read the paper that said a tree fell in the forest and this is a disaster and the tree is, is bad and the forest is collapsing. Or you might have read the other paper that said the tree fell in the forest and this is really important and it's part of how the forest sustains itself. And so you have a strong opinion about this event being good or bad. Or there's 800 newspapers and some of them don't cover the tree falling or others aren't even about that. And so you get this much more confusing world where this single event tree falls in forest is now not intelligible to the community around it. So coming back to this idea of creating, curating, and consuming, we can add another C word and say communicate. We used to talk to people about the things that we were consuming. You would go to work and say, hey, did you see Seinfeld last night? And they say, oh man, I did see Seinfeld last night. They're Jerry, sir, funny. And you'd have a conversation about this shared reality because there was only a handful of channels and only a handful of shows worth watching. So these big events were kind of, you know, almost like gathering spaces where we could come together and agree and talk about something. Maybe you don't like Seinfeld and you have a negative opinion, but you still are aware of Seinfeld and that it exists. Even if you didn't watch the show last night, you know that it exists. Now, if I go and talk to some 15-year-old kid and I'm like, what are you into? And he's like, oh, I like this Twitch streamer that plays in a K-sports or an esports league in Korea. I have no idea who that is. That is so far away from my reality. I'm completely lost. And so the system is breaking down and that creates networks of disconnection. We have reality tunnels that are constructed out of information that is not built from the same consensus. Somebody can know everything there is to know about Marvel movies and nothing about the film Gone with the Wind. They don't even know it exists. They know everything about Marvel movies. They're on forums. They're on Reddit. They're reading about Marvel movies. They've got the latest gossip, all of that. But Classic American movie history just doesn't exist in their reality. Somebody else barely is aware that Marvel movies exist. Obviously, on the globe, we used to have different countries, different populations, and there was some of this, but there were more of these central repositories of agreed upon information, and those have broken down. And so now we're in a situation where we can start getting lost from each other. We don't know how to find that agreed upon point where we can talk with a stranger. I mean, if we're in virtual worlds, we can't even talk about the weather anymore. Let's bring these two ideas for a moment together for a moment, and then we'll go on to the final piece of this puzzle. So to recap, we stop thinking about AI as just being a human that talks to us, but is built out of robots. 
And instead, we think about these systems, these societies we've already built being taken over by AI and that human in the loop slowly being removed. And now, instead of it being a bunch of humans chattering with each other in these societies, it's a bunch of AI chattering with each other. And that AI chatter is creating these reality tunnels that we're experiencing in the metaverse. So now, instead of having the agreed upon, oh, did you see the new Avengers? What if those AI are creating alternate Avengers? If when I go log into a streaming service, I'm not just seeing the same options that my neighbor sees. I mean, they're already sorted because it knows my neighbor has kids and I don't. I like horror movies. My neighbor doesn't. My neighbor speaks Spanish. I don't. We're getting different menus when we go to Disney+. Plus. But if we add in this AI element, and so the AI is iterating, and based on what I like, it's not just showing me a different movie that was created by humans. It's showing me something that's been generated whole cloth out of just these artificial processes. Suddenly, I'm watching Avengers 45, which is a mashup with Star Wars, and it's created just for me, and it knows that I have a foot fetish, so there's a lot of weird scenes of Jabba the Hutt licking people's toes. That is a totally different experience than what my neighbor has where they're deep into some Spanish language children's content rabbit hole. And we've completely lost our ability to connect with each other because the AI content that is being generated is unique in creating metaversal bubbles that we are now trapped in that are completely disconnected from the other physical humans around us. So if we think about this, how does information spread? If a war breaks out, does that information break into my bubble? If it breaks into my bubble, is it presented as a way that is a concern or is fake news and I should dismiss it? There's no way to tell. And we've let go of having humans being the ones that are passing along this information chain. And so distortions can occur at any point. You could have a weird hiccup in your TikTok algorithm and a whole bunch of information is just carved out of your reality. It simply does not exist for you anymore. So instead of thinking about this one globe as this one circle and we're all living on it, we suddenly have a giant, giant open space of bubbles. And some bubbles overlap and there's some big bubbles that have a bunch of other bubbles within it, but there's some bubbles that are off on their own and they have no connection. And there's all of these different worlds that are totally fragmented. And that brings us to the weirdest, trippiest part of all of this, which is psychedelics. Read the news. In addition to hearing about AI and the metaverse and whatever's happening in politics, you're likely to hear about the psychedelic renaissance and how now we're going to treat depression with ketamine and we're going to be able to use magic mushrooms to help soldiers feel better about all the atrocities they went through and yada, yada, yada. Okay. I like psychedelics. I've had a lot of great experiences on psychedelics, but that was when psychedelics were things that were underground, either literally like fungus, you know, magic mushrooms or produced LSD, things like that. They weren't being created by corporations. And when you have a corporation creating something, you get different results because that society is so much larger. The underground society of individual drug dealers and agents and chemists that were making psychedelics and distributing them before was distributed. It did not have the same intentionality that a corporation who is trying to get patents can have 
um, as they divine, design new and different psychedelics. Okay, there's that. Furthermore, with psychedelics, we're talking about a drug that changes our subjective experience. This is why Robert Anton Wilson was so excited about LSD and reality tunnels. His idea was that if you could use LSD to move into different reality tunnels, to see the world in different ways, and to kind of reality tunnel hop and change your perspective, to break out of your little patterns. Okay, that's a really cool idea. And when there's one shared bubble and everyone's reality tunnel is held within that, that's very exciting. And you can have this utopian vision that we're all going to come together and harmonize and sing Kumbaya. But now, if we take this idea of psychedelics, we can think about it as tuning. When I take meth versus LSD versus marijuana, it changes my sensory input and the experiences that I have. So if I'm at home and I've got, again, we're just going to imagine regular Avengers, first one, I guess, queued up on TV. I can watch that and take meth and have one experience. I can watch that and smoke weed and have a different experience. I can watch that on acid and have a different experience. Okay, that's my unique subjective experience, twisted, distorted, altered by these psychedelics. But then what happens when we bring these other elements into play? So we already have, I've read articles about this. This is not sci-fi. This is current. There is now AI algorithms that can watch MRI or I forget what the other acronym is, but basically you can put little pads to sense what's going on in the brain and see that activity. And then the AI can take that information and guess what visual input you're getting. So the test subject is looking at a photo of a cat the AI is scanning their brain and then it generates an image which looks like a cat. It's not the exact same cat the person's seen, but it looks like a cat. And if you Google this and you see these images, they're pretty on point. It's like, that's an airplane. That's a kind of distorted airplane. It's getting the gist of it. So what if we take a human and they're watching content? And the AI is generating the content at the same time that it is watching their brain and understanding what they are perceiving. We've now created a feedback loop. So I'm watching the content the AI is generating. It's understanding how I'm perceiving it and it's altering it and then changing it and so on and so forth. And now we take psychedelics and add that into the mix. So the AI is able to see not like a human, it's just a process, but it's able to see, okay, I'm looking at the blue square, the psychedelics are making me see it as a red triangle, and that is the process that's taking place. And now we've created something very, very new. Going back to our idea of agents, you have individual agents, and we have two ways to modulate them. We can use various psychedelics, to tune that subjective experience, and we can deploy those agents to create content, curate it, and consume it. And so in this society, all of these little individual agents are experiencing more and more profound mutations as they're able to tune in to other degrees. We used to have to have this through the human. 
I'm going to get stoned and I'm going to go see a Disney movie and I'm going to have my crazy ideas and then I'm going to animate that as something you would see on Adult Swim. I've taken that initial idea of a cartoon. I've put it through my stoned human brain and I've output a mutation that is more psychedelic and weird and strange. And then we're now taking the humans as much out of the loop as we can. So things are being created things are being curated and our role is to consume them and then whatever output we get whether that's clicking like whether that's some scan that's happening on our brain any of those sorts of things we now have these ai human psychedelic metaversal loops so there is content that is generated there is a human that is modulated by psychedelics and then that output is received and then that is grown out into these various bubbles and configurations of reality tunnels, which as societies like that kid who's deciding whether he wants to build the block tower or smash it down are competing with each other and creating an end result. So right now in our society with just humans, the way that we think about it, we have little subgroups and movements and political ideas are filtering up and then suddenly we're building more renewable energy or we're going into a civil war and these changes are happening. But the future that we are aiming towards is far stranger than we can imagine because we're not talking about an artificial intelligence that is just a single computer that exists in a lab. We are not talking about an artificial intelligence that exists as a robot that walks around like C-3PO. We're talking about an emergent, artificial intelligence similar to the way that nature operates and continuously iterates and mutates to find new adaptations and to acquire and apply knowledge and skills and that is created out of these societies of whatever is left of humanity on continuously refined psychedelics experiencing content and reacting in loops. So when you think about the future, don't think about Terminator and armies of robots that are taking over or even necessarily some sort of, again, Skynet-like scenario where an AI goes rogue and decides to nuke everybody. Instead, you can think about all of the human functionality that we enjoy slowly being sanded down. And so our humanness is now smaller and smaller as the ship of Theseus fills with these bots and artificial functions. I am not the fully developed office worker. I am just a small part that is responsible for taking one prompt and plugging it in someplace else. I am the teenager that is hitting my custom DMT pen that has been designed just for me while watching the weird content that has been designed just for me. And it's not just for my enjoyment. It's for me to act as an agent in this larger network that when it scales out is able to reach into spaces of possibility, imaginal psychedelic space ideas that are so far beyond what we're used to, they're completely alien to us. So 
that's what I spend all of my time thinking about. <laughs> How are you doing now? Um, yeah, it's not going to happen all at once, but I think the general trends that I've specified here are what we're going to see starting to emerge. Already we're seeing the trends of spending more and more time in these content realities. Metaverse doesn't have to be wearing goggles. Metaverse can just be going on Disney+. Plus. Already, we're seeing AI-generated content, and people are talking about if you could just make a movie generated by AI, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be variations. There can still be some human creativity, but then it's taking the one idea and saying, oh, sure, why don't we just let everybody, when you go click into the movie, you can choose what race you want the characters to be, and that's just a little option that you have. And then based on the information you've given, it's getting more and more specific to you and you're getting further and further away from everybody's reality and the psychedelics that we're taking as therapy with chatbots helping us integrate our experiences are taking us even further out into distant fields. And I don't know where it goes beyond that. Maybe there's some sort of singularity event and all of this harmonizes and we create new technologies that take our weird psychedelic content flurry and send it off to go find other resources that we can consume throughout the cosmos. And this is how consciousness expands. That's one of the ideas that I've talked about from the beginning on this podcast. If you go back and you listen to our opening ceremony, I talk about our very special listener, which is some sort of sentient awareness that exists in the distant future who was able to look back at all of the different consciousness. It's almost as if a human being was able to look into all of their individual cells and see everything that was going on. And my hope is that the wizard ideas that we have in this podcast are going to be a part of that. So whether it's some AI God at the end of space and time, or even just people stuck in these reality tunnel, metaversal bubbles in the future, the idea of wizardry is always about how to burst the bubble and seek that wider context where we can see what's going on and continue to have our own autonomy and agency. So that's that. That's the experiment that I just did in relaying this prophecy to you. I don't know if I'm going to be right. I could be completely wrong. This might all come across as a whole bunch of gibberish, but I'm Devin Person, America's number one wizard, and I've just shared what's in my weird, mostly human brain, and I hope you found it rewarding and valuable in some way. Because no matter what, whether you're a human being or a bot, I believe in you. Your magic is real, even if it's a little bit terrifying.